Okay, the next scripture we're going to discuss is going to be John 3, 14 to 16. It says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Twice this statement is reinforced that the result of not believing in Jesus is that you would perish. This is a key Greek word. We talked about it in the past, and I gave you a handout on it, so I'm not going to get into a great deal of detail on it. We look at the examples of how this word is used in the New Testament and the immediate context as well as the grammar associated with it. The Greek word here translated perish is apolemy. It literally means to destroy or to kill something. And the simple contrast here is between perishing and everlasting life. Let me ask you a pretty simple question. What would the opposite of everlasting life be? Everlasting torment? Do you realize when you say everlasting torment, you are essentially saying everlasting life in torment? But the contrast here isn't between everlasting life in a wonderful state versus everlasting life in a terrible state. It's a contrast between everlasting life and perishing. To the mind of anybody reading this that doesn't have a preconception about the nature of eternal judgment, what would immediately come to mind in these statements is that the contrast is being made between someone who is going to live forever versus someone who is not going to live forever. Someone who is going to have everlasting life versus someone who is going to perish. They're going to go out of existence. They're going to be destroyed. You can go forward just about 20 verses to John 3.36, and there's another passage on the judgment of God on the wicked says, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not on the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. This is sometimes used by traditionalists to say, see, that wrath of God is going to continue to abide on anybody that doesn't believe in Jesus. But that's not talking about in the future tense. That's talking about the wrath of God resting on and continuing to rest on any person who rejects Christ right now. You can't get out from underneath the judgment of God if you will not accept Christ. So when it says the wrath of God abideth on him, it means that God's wrath is still resting over you. You're still under God's judgment if you will not accept Christ. And as long as a person continues to reject Christ, God's wrath will continue to remain over him. And he that doesn't believe on Christ will not see life in the future and will be under God's wrath in the present. Meaning, if you choose never to believe in Christ, you will not see life eternal life, just like in 20 verses before we just read, in the future, and you'll continue to be under God's wrath in the present. There's an Old Testament scripture that's very similar to this in its language. It's Deuteronomy 29, 20. It says, the Lord will not spare him, but then the anger of the Lord and his jealousy shall smoke against that man, and all the curses that are written in this book shall lie upon him, and the Lord shall blot out his name from under heaven. Notice the similar language that God's wrath abideth on someone in John 3.36 and in Deuteronomy 29.20 that the curses that are written in this book shall lie upon him. That means God's judgment is resting on a person who chooses not to accept deliverance or chooses to stand against God. And the bottom line of these passages is that God's wrath in the present will culminate in the end of life in the future. Two chapters later in John, John 5, 28 to 29, this is a passage we've talked about in some detail when we talked about the doctrine of the resurrection. So it'd be another example I'm not going to spend a lot of time on, just touch on a couple quick points here. It says, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth, 
They that have done good unto the resurrection of life, they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. And that word damnation, as it's translated in the King James Version, is a very inappropriate translation. It's translating the Greek word krisis, which as we've discussed in the past, much more accurately would be translated judgment. Judgment isn't a positive or a negative. It depends on the result of judgment that determines whether or not it's a positive or a negative. So the idea here isn't that this is a resurrection that people are going to continue to go on to state of damnation, but a resurrection that will require people to stand in judgment. And this is judgment in a general sense. Okay, our next passage is in Acts 3, 22-23. For Moses truly said unto the fathers, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren, like unto me, him shall you hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you, and it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. The word soul here in Acts is the Greek word suke, which is essentially the same thing as the Hebrew word nephesh, the bean. Notice it says every soul that does not hear Christ will be destroyed. There's a couple issues in this that are important to understand. A soul can be destroyed. It says every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed. Not that it will continue to go through a process of destruction, but that it will be destroyed. This passage in Acts 3 is a reference directly back to Deuteronomy 18. It's the 15th to the 22nd verse that in part says, The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee of thy brethren like unto me. Unto him you shall hearken. I will raise them up a prophet. This is... Then God makes this statement, I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren, like unto thee, and will put my words in his mouth. He shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. And it shall come to pass that whosoever will not hearken unto my words, which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. What is he going to require? Well, he's going to require your life of you if you won't hearken to the words of the prophet. Okay, Romans 1, 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. The clearest interpretation of this passage is not that the wrath of God is going to be revealed off in the future and it's going to be eternal, but that the wrath of God is revealed right now. Wrath in the present. The terrible curse that's lying on this world, the terrible conditions that continue to go on in the societies and cultures and nations of this world are an expression of the fact that God's wrath is being revealed right now from heaven. It'll be revealed in an even more distinct way in the future. That is true. The Battle of Armageddon will be a revelation of the wrath of God. It will demonstrate that God is the origin behind that wrath. Every time God judges the wicked, it's a revelation of his wrath against them. But this doesn't tell us anything about a future eternal torment. It's principally talking about wrath in the present world that we're living in. In Romans 1.32, Who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. This is in one of the strongest passages in the New Testament about the terrible wickedness that was going on in that world and is even more exaggerated, unfortunately, in our present world. And notice that there is not a warning here about future torment. There's not a warning here that those who commit such things are worthy of unending conscious life that is going to be in a state of torment, but rather that those who do these things are worthy of death. This next point is going to be a bit repetitive in terms of a number of the statements of these passages we're going to be going through. And that is that the traditionalists often make the case that death in these passages doesn't mean physical death. It means to be spiritually dead to God. 
By extension, what they mean by that is, if you're spiritually dead to God, cut off from God, not alive to God, you can continue going on in a physical existence of some kind under torment, even though you're spiritually dead. So their answer to some of these statements about the result of sin being death is that it isn't physical death, it's that you're spiritually dead. But this is going to be true in a few of these verses we're going to go over. Notice that people that do those things are worthy of death. If that's talking about spiritual death, that's nonsensical. Because when somebody is in a state of rebellion against God, when somebody is in a state of presumptuous sin, or when they have never turned to God and they're in a state of ungodliness because they've never been delivered from their sins, in the sense of somebody that's never turned to God and thus they're dead in their sins, they're already spiritually dead. So saying that somebody's be worthy of death in a future sense, and you'll see this even more in some of the other passages, that the eventual punishment is going to be death, certainly cannot be talking about spiritual death because they're already spiritually dead. If you haven't turned to God or if you've rejected God or if you've rebelled against God, you are already spiritually dead. You're in a spiritually dead state right then, the eventual result of which will be a physical death. So this clearly states that people that do wickedness are worthy of death, but this can't only be spiritual death because these individuals are already spiritually dead if they're doing wickedness. It must be a different kind of death, and the only other kind of death that would fit under the context of these statements is a physical death, a destruction. Romans 2, 1-12 Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest, for wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest dost doest the same things. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things, and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds, to them who by patient continuance and well-doing seek for glory, honor, immortality, and eternal life, but unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil, of the Jew first and also of the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace to every man that worketh good, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. For there is no respect of persons with God. For as many as have sinned without law shall also perish, without law, and as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. Someone coming from a traditionalist standpoint might say it. this seems to be describing a future time when people are going to be going through a terrible tribulation and anguish, but there's several ways you can look at this that don't require it to have anything to do with an eternal future. First of all, notice that this says to the Jew first and also the Gentile. The idea being that the judgment and wrath and tribulation and anguish is going to occur first upon the Jews and then upon the Gentiles. That'd be a very strange thing to say if this is talking about some eternal future judgment. But it makes perfect sense when you consider that the Jews were the first that heard the message of Christ. They were the first that were given an opportunity to accept Christ. They were the natural limbs of that vine of the seed of Abraham that were intended to be given first opportunity. And they rejected him first, and they went into judgment, as we've been talking about throughout some of these New Testament passages. And that judgment resulted in them being in a present-day sense of tribulation and anguish. 
especially from 70 AD onward, there's been an almost ongoing condition of tribulation and anguish for the Jewish people. And they went through it first before the Gentiles will have to go through their judgment of that kind because they were first to hear the message and first to reject Christ. So that's one interpretive possibility of some of those statements. Again, I want to stress that the punishment described here for sin is to perish. Again, that word apolami, which means to be destroyed or to die. One of the very strongest passages in the New Testament is our next one that very clearly and distinctly states what the eventual punishment for sin is. It's Romans 6, 20-23. For when you were the servants of sin, you were free from righteousness. What fruit had you then, and those things whereof you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now being made free from sin and become servants to God, you have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Wages of sin is what? Death. Not perpetual ongoing torment. There's not even a hint of that in this statement. And this is a very strong statement about what the penalty will be for an individual that chooses to reject God's will and chooses to go on in their sins. The wages that you're going to be paid, the penalty you're going to receive, is going to be death. But that's not the only thing here. Notice that there's a contrast being made between the wages of sin and the gift of God. The wages of sin resulting in death, the gift of God resulting in eternal life. And no matter how you argue that, if somebody were to read this passage without some blinders of doctrinal preconception fastened over their eyes, they'll clearly see that the contrast is being made between death and life. If somebody is going to live forever in a state of torment, that is life, no matter how you look at it. It may not be healthy life, it may not be good life, It may not be a pleasant life, but it is life. And it is, by their interpretation, eternal life. But that's not what the contrast is describing here. It's describing the wages of sin being death versus the gift of God being eternal life. And just like in some of the past passages we just discussed, traditionalists often argue that this future punishment will just mean they'll be dead to God forever. But I want to stress this again. I'm sure I'll be doing it to the point of redundancy. Somebody that is dead in their sins is already dead in a spiritual sense. So what wages have they yet to receive? What are they going to receive in terms of the payday of eternal judgment? They're going to receive physical death. If their paycheck in the judgment is to receive spiritual death, they already had that walking around on the earth. If they were rejecting God, they were already spiritually dead. They already received the paycheck of being spiritually dead. This clearly isn't talking about that. This is talking about a physical death, which is the final wages of sin. 1 Corinthians three sixteen to 17 Know you not that you are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. What's the end result of defiling your temple? Destruction. The word destroy here is phthero, which literally means to shrivel up or wither away. That's pretty picturesque language, but just think about the natural process that causes something to shrivel up and wither away. Do you realize that once something dies, it begins to shrivel up and wither away? Once something dies, it shrivels up and withers away. So the final result of God's judgment, if it's destruction, is that your life will end and metaphorically speaking, you'll shrivel up and wither away, which seems to convey the idea that you would be done away with, that you would end your existence. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11 Know you not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? 
Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, abusers themselves with mankind, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, nor exhortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Now, this verse is just an example of a verse describing the judgment of God. It doesn't tell us what the unrighteous will inherit. It just tells us what they won't. They won't be a part of the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 16.22 If any man love not the Lord Jesus, let him be anathema maranatha. It is kind of unusual that the translators would choose to leave these last two words in the Greek rather than just translating them to English because it makes the statement quite a bit easier to understand if you translate it into English. The Greek anathema means cursed or set apart for destruction. Anyone who doesn't love Jesus is still under the curse, and if you're under the curse, you're set apart for destruction. Again, not everlasting torment, but destruction. Maranatha or Maranatha is from the Aramaic. It essentially means come, Lord. The statement of Revelation 22.20 where it says, come, Lord Jesus, is a parallel to this. Our next scripture is Galatians 1, 8-9. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that you have received, let him be accursed. This is very similar to the last statement we just read, the word accursed being the same Greek word anathema or anathema in the last verse, cursed or set apart for destruction. Next is Galatians 5.21, envies, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. That's very similar to the statement we read in 1 Corinthians 6.9-11. It doesn't tell us what they will inherit. It just tells us they won't inherit the kingdom of God. Next is Galatians 6, 8. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the spirit shall of the spirit reap life everlasting. The word corruption here is phthora. It means ruin, destruction, or corruption. In the latter sense being decomposition. The kind of corruption that occurs after something is dead like a body that decomposes after it dies. The contrast here is between dying and decomposing and living forever. So again, this doesn't seem to give any credence to the idea of an eternal conscious torment. Ephesians 5, 3-6 is our next passage, which in part says, For this you know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater, hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God, let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Bottom line, again, like some of the passages we just read, the idea here is that the wicked will not inherit with the righteous in being able to be a part of the kingdom of God. But it also includes this statement that the wrath of God comes upon the children of disobedience because of these things. That wrath isn't coming upon them just in the future. It's coming upon them right now in the present. As I said earlier, some of the terrible conditions of this world are an expression of the wrath of God and the judgment of God, and they're going to increase. The Battle of Armageddon, the Battle of Gog and Magog, and other events that occur associated with the millennial reign and the judgments of God throughout the millennial reign are an expression of God's wrath, which as time passes will increase to a greater intensity. And that wrath is going on right now and will be going on in the future. 
but that doesn't require it to be going on in the eternal future. Okay, Philippians 1, 27 to 28. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. Word perdition here is apoleia. It literally means destruction or annihilation. So the phrase, an evident token of perdition, might be translated a clear sign of their destruction. The fact that at some point the judgment they're going to receive is destruction. Two chapters later in Philippians, Philippians three seventeen to 19, says, Brethren, be ye followers together of me, and mark them which walk so as you have us for an example. For many walk of whom I've told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is, is in their shame, who mind earthly things. This is the word apoleia again, the same word that we just talked about in Philippians 1, where it's translated perdition, here it's translated destruction. And it does mean destruction or annihilation. But notice that the wicked do have an end. Their end is destruction. The traditionalist description of an everlasting existence for the wicked where there is no end of torment is an absolute contradiction to this statement that the wicked have an end. The end of the wicked, the final punishment of the wicked, their end will be destruction. The word end there is the Greek word telos, by the way. It means a termination or cessation of something, meaning truly what we think of as the end. You come to the end of a book. The book is over. The book doesn't continue going on forever once you reach the end. And in a life that is lived in rejection to God and of Christ that results in eternal judgment isn't going to eternally continue. It's going to be eternally ended. Colossians 3, 5-6 says, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry, for which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. The word translated cometh here is in the present tense in the Greek, meaning that God's wrath is currently coming upon the children of disobedience. Just like I mentioned back in Ephesians 3, God's wrath isn't just going to come in the future, and this passage isn't intended to convey the idea of a future unending wrath. This is talking about the fact that God's wrath is going on right now in the present. 1 Thessalonians 1, 9-10 For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. That is talking about wrath out to come in the future. But what future is that referring to? Is that the wrath that's going to come on the Jewish nation? Is that wrath that's going to come on the world through some future judgment of God? As I've said over and over again, there are other future judgments of God besides just the white throne judgments, you know. Where often traditionalists associate the idea of the wicked going into some eternal conscious torment, there are many other judgments of God. Armageddon is an example of the wrath to come. The seven vials are going to be poured out are an example of the wrath to come. The battle of Gog and Magog is an example of the wrath to come. So the wrath to come doesn't have to be a reference to an eternal future wrath of God. It can be any time that God pours out his wrath yet to be in the future. 
1 Thessalonians 4, 6 says that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter, because that the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we have also forewarned you and testified. The Lord is the avenger in the present tense, and he is the avenger in the future tense. And the point of this passage is that we ought to be careful of our treatment of our brother, because God will recompense upon us the way that we treat others. And again, this doesn't demonstrate any evidence for a future eternal conscious torment. The next chapter of 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 5, 1-5, says, But of the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly at the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. You are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. It's another passage that you have to ask yourself when you're trying to interpret it. What destruction is this referring to? I do not think this is referring to a future eternal ongoing destruction of some kind. Just as in the last passage, this is an example of a destruction that was still out ahead when Paul wrote this book to the church at Thessalonica. Whether that destruction included the events of 70 AD or whether it is intended to refer to a destruction and judgment of God that's far further out, it does not demonstrate any proof of an everlasting torment for the wicked in the future. The ninth and tenth verse of the same chapter say, For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. That simply means that those who are God's people do not need to fear the wrath of God. That's true in the present, and it's true in any future outpouring of God's wrath. Again, not an evidence for an eternal conscious torment to come. All right, who has Second Thessalonians 1, 5-10? Which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which ye also suffer. Seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that troubleth you, and to you who are troubled, troubleth with us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord, and from the glory of his power, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints, and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. When it makes this statement that he's going to be coming with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, does that sound like an event out in the distant future in terms of after the millennial reign, or does that sound more like what's going to happen when Christ returns in wrath associated with events like the Battle of Armageddon? The latter. Yeah, it does sound more like the description that Jesus gives of his return to judge the world. Not the white throne judgment after the millennial reign, but the wrath that's going to be poured out at the beginning of the millennial reign, and even possibly throughout the millennial reign. But it's the next phrase that traditionalists grasp onto, talking about these individuals being punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. We've talked about this all throughout, but I want to remind you, when someone with a traditionalist viewpoint reads these passages, they change the grammar almost every time they read them. 
instead of reading it with the grammar that it has, everlasting destruction, they may as well be changing it because what they think when they hear that is everlasting destroying, an everlasting process of destruction, everlasting ongoing destruction, not what we would think when we read it at face value. When we read that at face value, you think a destruction that's everlasting. Not that it goes on forever, but that you're destroyed forever. But when they read that, they read that with a different type of grammar than what's actually in the Greek there. They're reading that as a process of ongoing destruction. So they argue that this passage here in 2 Thessalonians 1 is a description of everlasting expulsion from God's presence. That God is going to cast them out of his presence and put them in a state of everlasting ongoing torment. There's two different ways you could interpret the Greek here, by the way. One would be to say that the wicked are being removed from God's presence by destruction. That doesn't mean it's ongoing destruction. You get removed from God's presence if he destroys you. You're no longer alive and in the presence of God. But there's another way you could translate that, that the wicked are removed by destruction that comes from the presence of God. There is another example of this kind of language in the Bible. It's in Acts 3.19. It's the opposite kind of a connotation. It's talking about something in a positive sense when it says, times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. That's exactly the opposite. Times of refreshing coming from his presence or everlasting destruction coming from his presence. It could be that it's describing them being cast out of his presence when they're destroyed or it could be describing the fact that the destruction comes from God's domain and destroys them. Neither one of those two interpretations would change how we would interpret this passage. We would interpret it just like it sounds. They are destroyed forever, and they're no longer in the presence of the Lord, or that destruction comes from the Lord. Either way, it doesn't make a difference. The fact is they're destroyed forever. We've stressed this throughout, so this is another one of those statements that can become redundant when we're talking about a subject like this. But the key thing to understand about these passages that describe destruction that is everlasting is that the resulting destruction that's carried out by whatever process or punishment God uses is everlasting in its impact rather than in its process. God can use a process to produce destruction. He can take someone through a terrible condition of torment. He can take someone through a terrible condition of persecution that will eventually result in destruction. But the point is that the result is everlasting, not the process. The process is temporal, meaning it it has a temporary period of time. But the result of that process is everlasting. So whenever we see passages that talk about everlasting punishment or everlasting destruction, It's the result of the punishment that's everlasting. It's the result of the destruction that's everlasting. Quite often, traditionalists who would believe in a hell of eternal conscious torment, as I said here just a few minutes ago, take this statement here not to mean that it's everlasting or eternal destruction, but it's everlasting or eternal destroying. That you're never destroyed. You're going through a process of being destroyed through all eternity. But that is not proper grammar. Not in the English, in the Greek. In the Greek, that's not proper grammar. The word destruction here, by the way, is a noun, not a verb. If you said eternal destroying, that'd be a verb. Something's being destroyed, to eternally destroy. But this is eternal destruction. Destruction here in the Greek is a noun. What that eternal is qualifying is the noun, not a verb of action. So it's not even proper grammar to try to make that kind of a case. Would we translate eternal salvation in the same way that they translate everlasting destruction. 
Hebrews 5.9 is where it uses that phrase, eternal salvation. He became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Given that it's the same exact type of phrase, it's the word ionios, which is eternal or everlasting, and it's a noun for the word salvation. Would we say that that means you're going to go through a process of being eternally saved? You're always going through a continual process of being eternally saved? Of course not. You're saved eternally. When we read a scripture like that, we understand very clearly that it never even enters our mind that our salvation is going to continue going on as a process. It's a process that's complete, and it lasts forever after it's been completed. There's other examples. Can you think of any other examples where that kind of language is used? There's one just four chapters later in Hebrews. The ninth chapter, the twelfth verse, when it says, By his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Nobody that I can think of would interpret that to mean that the redeeming process is going to go on eternally. Just like in the fifth chapter, I can't imagine anyone would interpret that to mean that the process of salvation is going to go on eternally. Both of these examples are strong reasons why translating everlasting destruction or everlasting punishment to mean an ongoing process is not how the Bible uses that language. Because as I said, eternal salvation is not continual salvation going on. It's that you've been saved and it's sealed in an eternal sense. It's completed. Everlasting redemption means you've been redeemed. You're not going to continue to be redeemed. You have been redeemed. And it's an eternal redemption. The duration of that redemption lasts forever, but it doesn't keep going on as a process of redemption. If that's the case, why then, when we find a scripture that says that someone's going to be eternally destroyed, would we interpret that entirely differently than how these other passages interpret it? Why wouldn't it mean the same thing? If you've got eternal salvation, why wouldn't eternal destruction be the exact opposite? You said the Greek word for everlasting is Ionios? In most cases, the Greek word for everlasting or eternal is Ionios. I-O-N-E-O-N-I-O-S. Since we're talking about Ionios, maybe we'll bring this point up. You have a handout that I gave you on the uses of these Greek words, so we're not going to go through that. It's very technical. But this is an interesting point. That word, translated eternal or everlasting, is used about 30 times in the Gospels. About 24 of the 30 times it was Jesus using that word. It was translated eternal or everlasting. About 20 of the 24 times Jesus uses the word for eternal, he's talking about life. Not in a negative sense. Not in terms of punishment. He's talking about the gift, the reward of eternal life. One time, the phrase everlasting habitations is referred to, but really that's talking about the same thing. Four times, Jesus uses this Greek word for eternal when he's talking about fire, punishment, or judgment. In Mark 3.29, it's translated damnation, like it is in John 5, but it's the Greek word krisis, which means judgment. So he uses it for fire, punishment, or judgment just four times. There's a reason I'm bringing this up. Out of the 30 times the word Ionios is used in the Gospels, 17 of them are in the book of John. Every single time in the book of John, he uses that word to refer to a reward, not a punishment. Eternal life. Not once in the book of John does he ever use the word eternal to refer to a punishment. Now there's a reason I'm making this case. Just keep following me. It's a little technical and it'll take a minute to get there. 
Of the four times that Jesus uses that word to refer to judgment or punishment or fire, three of them are in the book of Matthew. So almost all the times that it's used in a negative connotation about a fiery judgment associated with eternal or a punishment of some kind, it's in Matthew. The only other time is that example I gave you in Mark 3.29 where it's talking about judgment when it uses the Greek word krisis. It's translated eternal damnation, but it means eternal judgment. Now, here's why I gave you all those statistics. Who do most scholars believe the book of John's primary audience was? When John wrote his gospel, who would most scholars probably say was the primary audience for John's gospel? All the world. Usually there's a breakdown of who they assume most of those gospels are written to. Mark, usually the assumption is, is written primarily to the Romans. Luke, some would say, is primarily to the Gentiles in general and the Greek-speaking world. John to the world as a whole. Matthew to the Jews. The case that Matthew continually makes is that Jesus is your king. Jesus is the one that was promised. He was the king and Messiah. You notice that when the word eternal is used in the Gospels in the book of John, it's never used to talk about an eternal fire or eternal judgment. It's always used to talk about eternal life. Of the four times it's used to talk about something negative, three of them are in Matthew. And I told you a while back when we started going through some of the passages and some of the Gospels, there are a number of times when Jesus mentions judgment coming or fiery judgment of some kind that he's not talking about the whole world. He's talking about the judgment that was going to fall on the Jews. So isn't it interesting that three out of the four times the word eternal is used with a noun referring to judgment, it's in the book of Matthew, which is to the Jews. And the vast bulk of the times that eternal is used, it's used regarding life, not punishment. That, I think, is significant. It's a little bit technical, but if you think it through, I think it's pretty significant because it seems to support the idea that I've been presenting that quite a bit of the fiery judgment that's described by Christ is the fiery judgment was going to fall on Israel. And it was eternal in the sense that we described when we talked about some of the Old Testament passages where it uses the Hebrew word olam, for example, where eternal means as far as the eye can see. Not that it's never going to end all through eternity, but that as far as their eyes can see, it's unending. The word olam means to the horizon. God can see around the curve of the earth. He can see past the horizon. So from the perspective of the Jews, their punishment is an unending punishment, but God can see where the end of it is, and he's promised there'll be an end to it. So even though there's times God even uses this word eternal to refer to the punishment he's putting on Israel, he also says that he's going to gather them with great mercies. So I want you to consider that. It's a little technical, but I want you to think about that and reference some of these uses of the word eternal. There is an Old Testament passage that is the parallel for this passage we're in in 2 Thessalonians 1, 5 to 10. It's Isaiah 66, 15 to 16. Notice how similar the language is. It says, The Lord will come with fire and with his chariots like a whirlwind to render his fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire and by his sword will the Lord plead with all flesh and the slain of the Lord shall be many. And if you read on in that passage in Isaiah 66, it's a passage we've already talked about sometime back in this series of classes we've been having. Down the 24th verse, it says, They shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me, for their worms shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be an abhorring unto all flesh. Notice the result of the Lord coming with fire in the 15th and 16th verses. His rebuke being with flames of fire, by fire and his sword he'll plead with all flesh. And then right after that it says, the slain of the Lord will be many. Nobody reading that would come to the conclusion that those people are going to continue to be tormented by that fire. 
The idea is he's going to come with his sword and with his fire, and what's going to get produced by that are individuals being killed, slain. If that's not strong enough, you go down to the end portion. I read to you a moment ago in the 24th verse where it says they'll look upon the carcasses, the Hebrew word peger, which means corpses or dead bodies. It does not mean somebody that still has any measure of life. It's not a dying body. It's not a body that is diseased. It's not a body that's going through the dying process. It's a dead body. And often traditionalists make the case that in this state of eternal conscious torment that they believe in, that you won't have a dead body in the sense of it being physically dead. You'll have a body that's spiritually dead, and you're physically going through a continual dying process. But that's not what this says. This is the word that's used for a physically dead body. Hebrews 2, 1-3 is our next verse. Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him? Now, we talked about this verse a little while back when we talked about God's warnings and descriptions of judgment that are included in the Law of Moses. And we found that there were no warnings of eternal conscious torment that would follow your death in the law of Moses. There were many warnings of God's judgments in this life. But the highest penalty for a spiritual capital crime under the law of Moses never described torment or torture as part of that penalty. It always described it as death. And clearly it was a physical death because they carried out those executions upon those who broke that law. We mentioned this when we talked about that previously, that Paul describes the law of Moses here as having a just recompense or reward for every transgression and disobedience. If death, with no warning whatsoever of future torment, was considered a just recompense as the highest penalty for sin, why would we assume that there'll be an eternal conscious torment to follow it? Paul is saying here that all of the transgressions and disobediences that occurred under the law received a just recompense of reward. If death is a just recompense of reward, which is exactly what the penalty was under the law, then why would we say that eternal conscious torment would be just? Paul here is ascribing the most appropriate judgment that comes upon an individual for breaking the law is death. Sometimes the arguments made by traditionalists that eternal judgment is a progressive revelation and that the idea of this kind of future torment wasn't revealed until the New Testament. In other words, the Jews under the Old Covenant had no idea that they were going to live forever in eternal conscious torment if they disobeyed the law. But for several reasons, I am strongly opposed to that type of an interpretation. The most important of those reasons being the fact it is absolutely unbiblical. Can you imagine God intending to carry out a terrible, eternal torment on all those individuals who rejected him, not giving them one clue that that would be the penalty? when that warning might have caused them to straighten up and to not disobey the regulations of the law. And if you think that God was easy on them under the Old Covenant, consider how quickly the death penalty was carried out on individuals who broke the law in presumptuous ways, like the man who gathered sticks on the Sabbath day and was killed for it. God certainly didn't pull his punches, metaphorically speaking, in regards to judgment of the Old Covenant. So what reason would God have for not telling them under the Old Covenant that they were going to be in danger of eternal torment? 
And it would seem that if God didn't tell them under the old covenant that that was a danger, that would be unjust on the part of God to carry out a judgment on them based on their actions when those actions might not have been taken if they'd understood the fullness of the terrible torment that they had facing them. Another thing to take into consideration, it completely contradicts this traditionalist argument that this is a progressive revelation of God's judgment, and that now in the New Testament, it's revealed that God is going to eternally torment, though he didn't reveal it in the Old Testament. This is a New Testament passage we're reading. Hebrews was written during the New Testament era, and Paul, who I believe to be the writer of Hebrews, clearly states that these transgressions and disobediences received a just recompense of reward. There's several issues with that statement. First of all, they received them already. They're not waiting to receive them. And secondly, Paul calls the judgment on those transgressions and disobediences just. And he's a New Testament writer referring to that as just. If the true justice of God was to torment people forever, how could Paul make the statement that it was just to just carry out the death penalty under the law that had no torment or torture associated with it? So there are many evidences in this first three verses of the second chapter of Hebrews against the idea of a traditionalist view of hell. Then Hebrews 6, 1-2, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of the resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. This isn't a passage that tells us anything about the nature of eternal judgment. It just tells us that there is an eternal judgment. But notice, this doesn't say eternal judging, that you're going to be eternally going through a process of being judged. This is an eternal judgment. And that doesn't mean the judging itself or the punishing itself lasts through all eternity, but the result of that punishment will be eternal. So an individual that is punished with death will never have a chance at life again. They will be eternally judged and eternally destroyed. Next verse is Hebrews 6, verse 8. That which beareth thorns and briars is rejected and is nigh unto cursing. What does it say after that? Whose end? Whose end is to be burned. To be burned forever? It doesn't say that there. And notice that it uses the word end. Wouldn't common sense and logic seem to convey the idea when you're reading this that if something has an end, it stops at some point? This is very similar to the kind of language Jesus uses and other writers in the New Testament describing the wicked as thorns and briars. The principal reason for that is pretty simple. Thorns and briars are not fruitful plants. They are growing, but they're growing and choking out life rather than producing life. They're not productive. They're not producing fruit. And in a very literal sense, if you're talking about literal thorns and briars, if you were going to get rid of them and you were trying to rid yourself of them, you would tear them out of the ground. And the most common way of getting rid of them is you would burn them up. You wouldn't burn them forever. What good would there be in burning thorns and briars forever? The goal is to destroy them, to get rid of them, so you don't longer have thorns and briars. It is a strange concept to me that traditionalists believe that God would be better served by allowing the thorns and briars that are represented by the wicked here to burn forever rather than destroying them. Why would you want to keep thorns and briars? What would it serve to keep the thorns and briars? Wouldn't you want to get rid of them? 
And it seems that so much of this language, if you read it without the preconception of the idea of eternal conscious torment, so much of this language conveys the idea of something being removed or destroyed or consumed by the fire. This isn't literal thorns and briars we're talking about here. But it is important to understand that when someone uses a figurative picture like thorns and briars, it's intended to convey an idea. Like thorns and briars, they're going to be gathered up and burned. But nobody, when they gather up and burn thorns and briars, is thinking about keeping them burning for a long time. They want them to burn up so that they're gone. I said here a minute ago, notice that the end of these wicked individuals is to be burned. A traditionalist might approach that by saying that's the beginning of the end. And the end goes on forever. But think how illogical that statement is. If the idea is that their burning is their punishment they're going to have to undergo through all eternity, what a strange thing to say if their end is to be burned. Right. Well, I imagine a traditionalist response to that would be the end of their judgment is they're going to be burned forever. But that's not really what it says in this statement. And by the way, the word end, if you want another Greek word, the word end here is telos, T-E-L-O-S. It means a definite point in time for something to come to its termination or cessation. In other words, to be finished. The end of these individuals is that they will be burned up. Not burned on and on, but burned up. That's what we do with thorns and briars in a natural sense, and I think that's what God's going to do with the thorns and briars of this world. He's going to burn them up. Would you tie that back into Matthew, where Matthew talks about those that... that, that 13 chapter of Matthew, parable of the sower. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would. In some of those parabolic references in Matthew 13, they're the seed of the wicked one. They are the unfruitful element that has to be removed. And I want to stress this again. This is such a simplistic point. What would be served by keeping thorns and briars around? God wants to create a world wherein dwelleth righteousness. He wants a universe completely at harmony with him. Do you realize the universe will never be completely at harmony with God as long as the wicked are allowed to remain alive? as long as they're allowed to continue existing. And making the case that they're existing in some separate place from the righteous, undergoing torment endlessly, means that forever the universe will never be in harmony with God. Because there'll always be a pocket of resistance. And the truth of the matter is, that is exactly how the traditionalists believe it's going on. They'll tell you that the reason the wicked can never be delivered is because they will never choose to accept God, so thus they have to be tormented forever. If that's the case, that essentially means the universe is forever going to be in a state of disharmony. Because someplace, somewhere in God's economy, there are still rebellion going on forever. Because they're rebelling and refusing to accept him, they're rebelling and rejecting his will, and that's the reason they continue to be tormented. See how nonsensical that becomes? God intends the entire universe to be in complete harmony with his will. That'll never happen if the wicked continue to exist somewhere in a state of rebellion while they're burning and popping and singeing and being tormented all through eternity. Okay, who had Hebrews 10, 26-31? For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite 
unto the Spirit of grace. For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me, I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. There's a certain fearful looking. Notice that's how the passage that I asked you to read begins. Near the beginning of that passage, a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. And it is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. Part of that is the fact often there is a process of judgment before there's destruction. And that's a fearful thing to have to face. I wouldn't argue for a minute that there is not quite often a process of judgment God uses that is extremely uncomfortable extremely painful emotionally or even physically or otherwise that you have to go through before you face your final destruction. The end result, though, is final destruction. Notice the language here, judgment and fiery indignation. And there's a result to that fiery judgment and fiery indignation. It shall devour the adversary. Devour is the Greek word estheo, E-S-T-H-I-O. It means to eat, consume, or devour something, just like they translated it. Would anybody using the word devour or eat for something come to the conclusion that you're going to do it forever? You're just going to keep eating and you never stop. You never stop chewing. You never stop masticating your food. It never gets fully processed through your body. You're continuing to eat and devour with no end in sight. That isn't at all what this is talking about. This means to consume something, to eat it up. And when God pours out his judgment on the wicked, they will be consumed. They'll be eaten up. What parallel reality are you living in that you think devouring something is a never-ending experience? There's times when I have some good food in front of me, I wish it was a never-ending experience. But that isn't how consuming something works, isn't it? You consume something, you get rid of it, don't you? You eat it up, you devour it. In Hebrews 10, the 38th and 39th verse, it says, Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. Here's this word perdition again. It's the Greek word apoleia. It is believed to be a derivative of the Greek word apolemi that we've talked about before, which literally means to be fully or entirely destroyed or to perish. So the idea here of perdition is that you're going to be destroyed or to perish. So if you draw back from serving the Lord, the resulting punishment for that is to perish, to be destroyed, to go out of existence, to be annihilated. Okay, our next passage is Hebrews 12, 25 to 29. Who has that in front of them that can read it for us? The very key point of that being at the very end. See that you refuse not him that speaketh, for if they escaped not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word, yet once more, signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken as of things that are made, that those things that which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. God is a consuming fire. That's the same kind of concept that we just read about the enemies of God being devoured. God consumes people as a fire. Again, I want to ask you, using common sense... Someone reading this passage, if they heard the statement, our God is a consuming fire, what would come to mind? 
that anybody that stands against God will be annihilated by his wrath. Nobody would come to the conclusion reading at this at face value, that means you just keep getting consumed eternally. The fire of God just keeps burning you. When we think of a fire being a consuming fire, if your house caught on fire and you were to describe it as a consuming fire, what do you think that would mean to somebody? That'd mean your house was gone when the process was gone. It consumed your house. If we say fire consumes something, we mean that it gets rid of it, don't we? When it's done consuming, it's gone. And our God is a consuming fire. When God's wrath is poured out, anyone that stands against him is removed from existence. They don't continue existing forever because he's a consuming fire. Let's just think about this with logic. He's a consuming fire. He consumes his enemies. That's very different than the idea of endlessly tormenting them. He extinguishes his enemies by consuming them, by doing away with them, by completely swallowing them up in death rather than in some ongoing state of existence. James 1, 13 to 15 is our next passage. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Notice how similar this is to some of the language we've been reading in some of the passages that preceded this in the New Testament. When sin is finished, it brings forth death. Just like the statement in Romans 6.23, this is one of the clearest and strongest statements in the New Testament regarding the penalty for sin. And it says very distinctly and very clearly that penalty is death. I've said this a number of times, I'm going to reiterate that the traditionalist argument against these kind of statements is often that death can be used in a variety of ways, and it doesn't always mean physical death. I agree. There are times that to be dead means to be spiritually dead. And their next step in making that case would be to say that individuals that are going to go on through eternity in a state of torment are individuals that are spiritually dead because they're not truly physically dead, because otherwise how could they undergo any torment? But that is nonsensical in these kind of passages. Just as I said back in Romans 6 and in some of the other passages that use this similar language, James says that sin when it is finished brings forth death. The problem with trying to argue that that is spiritual death is that is completely the opposite of what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that we are already dead in our trespasses and sins. And if we continue to sin, we are going to be physically dead at some point. The curse that was brought upon Adam and Eve was not just spiritual death. When they ate of the tree, they became spiritually dead, but they also did eventually die physically. There are multiple layers to the type of death an individual undergoes when they're under the curse. They initially are spiritually dead. But look, we are born in sin and conceived in iniquity. We begin by already being spiritually dead to God. We've got to be made spiritually alive by the Word and the Spirit in order to no longer be spiritually dead. So somebody whose eventual end is death, as James describes it here in this 15th verse, when he says sin when it's finished will bring forth death, can't be talking about spiritual death because sin makes you spiritually dead to begin with. When it's finished, it brings forth physical death. There is no other way you can take that verse that would make any logical or biblical sense. James 4.12 is our next verse. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who art thou that judgest another? Destroy here is the Greek apollomy that we've talked about. 
And again, it means to completely or entirely destroy or cause something to perish. James 5, 1-6. Someone have that in front of them. Go to now, ye rich men, weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Your riches are corrupted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver is cankered, and the rest of them shall be a witness against you, and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. Ye have heaped treasure together for the last days. Behold the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, crieth, and the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sebaoth. Ye have lived in pleasure on the earth, and been wanton. Ye have nourished your hearts as in a day of slaughter. Ye have condemned and killed the just, and he doth not resist you. This is clearly not a statement about some future ongoing eternal fire. This is an example of how fire can be used in a figurative way to describe someone in a state of torment that doesn't necessarily have to be physical. What seems to be pictured in this passage are the fact that these rich men who, by the description here, have taken advantage of the poor and taken advantage of others in order to heap up material treasure by some kind of an unrighteous means. When they lose that power, they lose that privilege, they lose their wealth that they've heaped up, it will be the condition of anxiety and the condition of irritation, the condition of anger that they're going to be in at having all these things taken from them is going to be like a fire. Now, that's not talking about a physical fire burning them. That's talking about the condition of misery, you might say, that they're going to go through because of the judgment that's going to fall on them. They're going to have their prestige and power and privilege and treasures taken from them, and it'll be a very miserable condition for them to have to face. You can use fire in a lot of different ways in the Scripture to describe somebody in a state where they are in a miserable condition that has nothing to do with physical burning. The statement, as it were, fires, mm-hmm. as if to say, like fire. That's absolutely right. James five nineteen to 20 says, Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death, and shall hide a multitude of sins. There's two key issues in this passage. One of them is, it demonstrates simply and clearly that a soul, the Greek word here, suke, can die. Because if you convert a sinner from the error of their way, you'll save their soul from dying. Not from going on forever in some eternal state, but from dying, from death. The second issue is related to that. What are we delivering a sinner from when we help him to be saved? Death. There's no hint of eternal torment here. And if eternal torment was the result of sin, wouldn't it be a stronger statement here to say that we're delivering a soul from eternally being tormented? Don't you think it'd be a much stronger evangelistic statement to say, brethren, we've got to do our very best to convert sinners so that they won't have to be eternally tormented? But rather, James says, brethren, we've got to do our very best to convert sinners that are in error so that we can deliver their soul from death. Again, a statement against the idea that the result of sin is eternal torment. Rather, the result of sin is death. 1 Peter 4, 17-19 is our next passage. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God, and if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and sinner appear? 
Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. It is a passage that denotes the judgment of the wicked, but it doesn't describe that judgment. It doesn't tell us much about it other than the fact that the ungodly and the sinner are not going to appear, but that the righteous will be saved. I'm going to pick some pieces out of this next passage, which is 2 Peter 2, 1-22. I'm just going to grab some pieces and parts that are referring directly to the issue of judgment here. The context of the passage is regarding false prophets and those who are in false doctrine, the type of judgment that's going to fall upon them. It says, There were false prophets also among the people. There will also be false teachers among you. They bring in damnable heresies, denying the Lord that brought them. They bring upon themselves swift destruction. Notice that. They don't bring upon themselves an ongoing, continual torment. They bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their pernicious ways. That'll cause the truth to be evil spoken of. Goes on to say that their judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. For if God spared not the angels that sin, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness, to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world the ungodly. Notice what the judgment was on the old world, that the flood being brought upon them was the judgment. It doesn't say that he destroyed them in the flood so he could continually destroy them in a torment to come. It says that the judgment was the flood. It goes on to say in the very next statement, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an sample unto those that after should live ungodly. Again, the judgment isn't that he turned Sodom and Gomorrah into an ongoing eternal torment, but that he turned Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes and overthrew them. That was their judgment. It goes on to say, The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. This is another example of this word, to reserve. And I'll address that when we get to the parallel passage in Jude just a couple of verses later, these as natural brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed. That's the Greek word phthora, by the way. Speak evil of the things they understand not and shall utterly perish. That phrase being the Greek katafithrio. They shall utterly perish in their own corruption and shall receive the reward of unrighteousness. What is the reward of unrighteousness? It's to utterly perish. That's not to forever go through a state of torment without ever perishing. That is to utterly perish. And what would anyone reading this think that it would mean to utterly perish, to utterly be extinguished, to utterly be annihilated? That phrase, by the way, is the Greek katathrio. You go on all the way to the 22nd verse of this passage to get more of this context of this. But I'm going to go over to the parallel passage in Jude and pick some pieces out of that that are relative to the idea of God's judgment. Down between the third and the seventh verse, Jude makes this statement, I will therefore put you in remembrance, though you once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believe not. That word destroyed is the word that has been coming up so commonly in these passages on judgment, the Greek word apolemy. I think we would all agree that the destruction that was carried out on Egypt was the death, not only that began with the firstborn being killed, but also the death of the armies of Egypt when the walls of the Red Sea crashed down upon them in their pursuit of Israel. Notice it says he destroyed them that believe not. Not that he's still destroying them, 
Not that they're undergoing some continual destruction, but that they were destroyed. And anyone reading this would immediately think back to the history of Israel and the death and destruction that occurred upon that nation. That's not an ongoing condition of death and destruction. It's death and destruction that already occurred and was final. It goes on to say, The angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness under the judgment of the great day. This word reserved is the same word we saw over in 1 Peter. It's the Greek word tereo. Reserved isn't a bad translation, but it's a little clearer if you were to translate it more literally. It means to guard or to keep watch over. But notice the next phrase, unto the judgment of the great day, which means there's a point at which those everlasting chains will have carried out their purpose in the sense that they have held those individuals until they have come to their judgment at the judgment of the great day goes on to say, even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. That statement is one of the most powerful statements about the nature of eternal fire in the New Testament. And it matches perfectly with the use of that language in the Old Testament. It's a fire that's eternal in its result. Whatever's burned by that fire is eternally burned. Not eternally burning, but it's eternally destroyed. No one would make the case that Sodom and Gomorrah are still burning. So the eternal fire there cannot be referring to fire that never goes out, but fire that once it burns something up, burns it up eternally. The 13th verse calls them raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame, to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. It's true, the chains and blackness of darkness these passages are referred to as everlasting and forever. But we have to ask ourselves, is that intended to be a hyperbolic statement? Or is that intended to be a literal thing? Will there literally be chains that are everlasting chains that will always hold those beings under darkness? Well, the passage itself tells you that that's not what it means. Because the very next statement after it says that they're reserved in everlasting chains under darkness tells you how long that they're going to be in those everlasting chains unto the judgment of the great day, which means those chains will not be able to be broken by anything until they come to the judgment of the great day. And this is true of some of the other statements that are similar to this. But you could look at it in a much more deeply metaphorical way if you chose to. I wouldn't have a problem with interpreting it in this way. And that would be that the everlasting chains and the blackness of darkness that lasts forever is a reference to the fact that any of these individuals who are judged in this way will never be freed from that judgment. Now, that doesn't have to require them to be undergoing ongoing punishment. If God is never going to raise you from the dead, you're never going to be freed from that judgment. If you are going to be destroyed without ever having a hope of eternal life, You are held in that state of judgment in the sense that you are never going to be freed from it. The blackness of darkness there certainly is much deeper than anything literal, and it's almost certainly referring to spiritual darkness. It also is a very similar parallel to the language of what occurs at death, in both a spiritual sense or a physical sense. In the spiritual sense, when someone is spiritually dead, they are in spiritual darkness. But in the physical sense, when someone is physically dead, they go into darkness. There's no more light of life in a spiritual or a physical sense for an individual in that condition. Okay, who has 2 Peter 3, 6-9? Whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished 
But the heavens and the earth which are now, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all shall come to repentance. There are several strong points in this passage that support our view of eternal judgment and destruction rather than ongoing torment. There's a couple Greek words that are important here that we've talked about before that I'll just briefly mention before I explain this context of this. The word perished in the sixth verse is apolemy, which is one of the Greek words that we talked about some time back. I gave you a handout on it. It means to be destroyed. When it says there in the middle of this passage, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men, traditionalists often explain that as after the day of judgment, then you're going to go into this perdition, which is that torment that's going to last forever, is the perdition. But that word perdition is a derivative of apolemy, the word that means perished. It's apoleia. It means destruction. So they just as easily could have translated this, that it's reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. By the way, the NASB and the ESV, which are two translations we often check when we're wanting to balance out some of the possible issues of the King James Version translation, both translate that destruction. And it's far clearer when you read it that way that it's the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. When you put the word perdition there, it sounds like some kind of punishing process, but that's not what it is. It's destruction. The word perished in the sixth verse, that was the Greek word apolemy, refers to the destruction of the flood of Noah. It says the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. That's talking about the destruction that happened during the time of Noah. Why would this word suddenly mean something entirely different when we get down to the seventh verse and the derivative apoleia is used? Wouldn't it be the same kind of destruction? And what kind of destruction did the old world have? Did God take them through a process of eternal drowning since he used water to destroy that world? The world that was destroyed in the flood of Noah isn't still drowning. It was overflowed with water and perished. When you see descriptions of how the world of the last days is going to be destroyed, language of fire is often associated with the battle of Armageddon and with some of the judgments that are going to fall. Why would we assume that's going to be any different than the way water was used on the antediluvian world? The antediluvian world was overflowed with water and it perished, meaning God used water to destroy all of those individuals who were not in the ark. If we make a parallel with that, if God's going to use fire to destroy the wicked, why would it be any different than the way he used water to destroy the wicked in the antediluvian world? He's not still drowning them, is he? They've been drowned and they're dead. And I personally believe that the fire he uses, whether it's a literal fire that he uses in some of the judgments that are going to be poured out on this earth, or whether it represents something in a figurative sense, or both, I think it's going to result in the same end that the water resulted in, and the flood is going to destroy the wicked. There's one other line of evidence in this passage, though. That's down in the ninth verse when it says that God's not willing that any should perish. Perish. That's the exact same word, by the way. It's used back in the sixth verse, Apollome, for what happened to people in the flood. I want to ask the same question again. If the people in the flood perished, and all of us would agree that that was a physical death, 
then why would it mean something different in the ninth verse when God says he doesn't want any of them to perish? If perish in the sixth verse regarding those who died in the flood means physical death, why would it mean something different three verses later when God said he doesn't want anyone to perish in this day? It does mean the same thing. It means he does not want them to have to die. And those that died in the flood died. They perished. And the same thing God doesn't want to happen to people in this day is the same kind of judgment. He doesn't want them to have to perish. He is still sending out a call over this earth for individuals to be saved. But the perishing there isn't an ongoing eternal torment. It's death and destruction, just like it was in the flood of Noah. And it's the same exact word, just a few verses apart. So that in itself should be an evidence that it's talking about the same thing, death and destruction.